0: I would guess that you know that it's true that what you pray about reveals what you love and what you value. So when you think of talking to God about whatever is on your soul, the words that come out of your mouth reflect the rumblings of your heart. For instance, imagine what you would think if you heard someone pray some of these prayers. God I need $10,000 right now. (laughs) Or, Jesus, this week, would you make me pretty and popular? Or, oh God, please let that police officer give me a warning. (laughs) Or, Jesus, would you help me with my really, really annoying roommate? See, all of these prayer requests have a story behind them, they have a value set implicit in them, what we pray reflects what we value. Then, if you add suffering in the mix, man, then your prayers really reflect what they value. In fact, that's one of the challenges, isn't it, when hard things come, is it creates really painful and, and, and hard emotions, and sometimes it makes it difficult for us to even know what we should pray or how we should pray. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, and he's standing in front of a suffering that he knows is coming. Unlike you and me, who have no idea usually what's coming, and sometimes we, we, we might like to think, I wish I could know the future. You know, the older I've gotten, the more I'm thankful I don't know the future. Because if I had known back then what I know now about what that was going to be like, that would have really tripped me out. But Jesus knows what's coming. He knows about the cross. If you were to flip ahead into your Bible in John 18, you'll see the arrest, the betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus. And true, it's going to result in the resurrection. But Jesus knows that suffering is right around the corner. And so in the midst of that, he prays. And what does he pray? He prays three things. One for himself, two for the disciples. First, he prays for glorification. Father, glorify me. Secondly, he prays for protection. Lord, keep them in the world, but keep them from the evil one. And third, he prays for sanctification. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And I want to suggest to you that these three prayers, one that Jesus prays for himself, two that he prays for his disciples, are very instructive not only to help us understand the heart of Jesus, but they're also instructive to us who are Christians to know how we should pray when difficulties and suffering comes. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, This text, I think, could be helpful to you because it's going to explain to you how Christians think about hardship and what it is that we value, or at least God helps us to value, or we're supposed to value when we're walking through difficulties. This text will help you understand the why behind the what in terms of the things that Christians believe. That in some cases, if you're not a Christian, you may look at us and think, you're crazy for believing that. And in some respects, we are. We're amazed by God's love for us. And that has changed everything, including what we value as we're walking through difficulties. So let me help you understand the three things here that Jesus asks for. So he asks for glorification, he asks for protection, and he asks for sanctification. And we're going to look at each of these. So let's begin by looking at the first one. Jesus prays for glorification. Look at your Bible, John chapter 17. By the way, if you don't have a copy of God's word out, either in a phone or in a printed form. You're going to need to, because we're going to go to a number of different places today, and rather than put them up on a screen, I want you to see them in your copy of God's Word, because I want you to be accustomed to where these passages are, because you need to find them on your own, beyond just a Sunday morning service and a screen that's in front of you. So verse 1 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So spoken these words, he finishes his his upper room discourse, the last words that he gives to his disciples, And then it says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, which is a prayer posture. And what a moment this must have been. Jesus is talking to the Father just before he's about to enter into the most difficult moment of suffering in his entire lifetime. And what does Jesus pray? He says, Father, the hour has come. Now this word hour is a familiar concept in John's Gospel. It refers to the fulfillment of his mission. It refers to the crucifixion. It refers to his death. It refers to his suffering. So the hour has come. Previously, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. In fact, it's the first thing that he says at his first miracle when he turns the water into wine. Prior to that, his mother comes to him and says, look, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus keeps saying this hour thing, hour thing, hour thing, that it's not quite here. Now it's here. John is using this as a marker to tell you this is the fulfillment of all of the reasons that Jesus came to earth. And then he prays this, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. If you underline things in your Bible, that's a little phrase that you really should underline because it represents really the sum total of the message of the gospel of John. Everything leading up to the gospel really focuses in this particular Um, Moment and in this particular way of glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And in fact, you could even think of the concept of glory and the glory of God as the theme of the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is about the revelation of what God is like and the restoration of sinful people back to him because of what he's like. Now, I don't want to assume that you know what the word Glory or glorification means. It's a familiar word, but sometimes familiar words lose their punch because we don't really know what we're talking about. So to glorify, by definition, means to praise or to honor. It has far deeper significance, though, than just flattery or affirmation or recognition. Glory is connected to the weightiness of who God is. It's the word that the Bible uses to try to describe how other God is from us. The Bible tells us in Psalms that the heavens declare the glory of God. So when you see a beautiful sunrise as there was this morning and it reminds you that this world is unbelievably beautiful, that that is meant to be a reflection of the glory of God. The glory of God is the sum total of what he is like and what makes him God. And the reason why this word is important is because it showed up very early in John's gospel. Take your Bible, and let's go to John chapter 1 and verse 14. The first time we saw this was when we started our study in this wonderful book, and John was reflecting on what it meant for Jesus to come to earth. And John 1:14 Says this, the word, that means Jesus, became flesh. So Jesus, as the Son of God, became a man, and it says he dwelt among us. Remember that because we're going to look at another text in Exodus in a moment. He tabernacled among us, he lived among us, and we have seen his, what's the next word? Glory. We've seen his glory, and then how does he describe this glory? Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is trying to help you understand that we saw something in him. We saw something that reflected the glory of God, and that glory of God is captured in two key concepts of grace and truth. A God who is merciful, but a God who is just. You see, there is no justice without mercy, and there is no mercy without justice. You have to have both in order for everything, culture and society, and for God himself to work because God's holiness and his glory is captured in what it means for him to be a God of grace and a God of truth. Now look at John chapter 2 and verse 11. Remember, I mentioned that Jesus did a miracle in John chapter 2. He turned the water into wine. Well, when the disciples saw that he did this, the text says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his, what's the next word? Glory. So Jesus manifested, he showed the disciples an element of his glory and his disciples believed in him. What did they believe? They believed that he really is the son of God. They believed that there's something about him that shows us the glory of what God is like. So this idea of the glory of God expressed in the person of Jesus is a central message in John's Gospel. But it's not just in John's Gospel take your bible go all the way back into the old testament to the book of exodus last chapter in exodus chapter 40 last paragraph beginning in verse 34 so the whole book of exodus is about god delivering his people out of bondage it's the redemption story it's what the cross is for new testament believers or those of us who live today the exodus was that event it's when god's people knew that God cared and God delivered them. And after they were delivered and they're wandering in the wilderness, they build a tabernacle, a place for the people of God to worship. It's the first physical location designed for God to meet with mankind. And verse 34 tells us that after they completed the construction, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what this means is God is here and he's different than you. That's the point. God showed up to meet with his people, but God isn't like you. So some of you know that when we baptize people, they wear a t-shirt and it says, God is holy, I am not. That's the message of the Bible. The good news, God is holy. The bad news, you're not. Good news, Jesus saves. He reconciles the God is holy and I am not reality by providing atonement. And then on that t-shirt it says, Christ is my life. So if you're not a Christian and you're like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Here's what it means. It means that we... Understand that the Bible tells us that God is holy and righteous, and we are at our core. We are sinners. In fact, in a moment, we're going to see we're glory thieves. We grab glory from other things, and we attribute those things as equal with God or ourselves as equal with God. And as a result, we're separated from God, and unless Jesus comes to pay atonement for our sins— There's no way for us to be reconciled. So to be a Christian means that you believe that Jesus pays the penalty for your sins and that your sins can be forgiven. And that beautiful forgiveness is what creates in the heart of a believer a love for God's glory. Why do Christians love God's glory? Because he rescued us from ourselves and our perpetual pursuit of glory in all the wrong things. Just think, for instance, about how much glory you went after this week. Somebody said something to you over a text message, and you were like, how dare they say that? You know what that is, that thing? It's like, who do they think they are messing with this glory? That's what that is, right? You don't say it. You're like, that was kind of mean. I wasn't very, I was kind of snarky. But what you really mean is, man, I'm a thing, and how dare you? You're like the great Oz. Who dares send this text to me? (laughs) Ha ha ha. That's how we are, right? Now, when we're little kids, like we don't know enough to kind of hide that. So we, it just kind of comes out. That's why our kids are wicked, awful sinners when they're two and three years old. They desperately need Jesus, right? It's just a, because why? Because they're constantly pursuing their own glory. That's mine. Or they get involved in athletics, right? It doesn't matter if they do a good, you know, roundhouse or not when they're done. They're like, ta-da! You know, in the back of your mind, like that's no ta-da, that's sit down. That's not good at all, right? But no ta-da. Or, hey, they participated and showed up at practice. Here's a medal, right? Here you go, right? So, because we're gonna have glory because you showed up. All right, so fine. That's a little riff, just so you know. But anyway, so. <laughs> We are glory pursuers. In fact, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, listen to this, describes the brokenness of humanity this way. For the wages of sin is death. And then he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means... That we all have sinned, that there's penalty for our sin, and the way that we sin is we keep grabbing a hold of things that we shouldn't grab a hold of. The great thing is, is there's coming a day when Jesus is going to make it all right. The book of Habakkuk says this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. There's coming a day when Jesus is gonna come back and for those who know him, are gonna live in the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be no impure thought, no wrong motive. I mean, imagine it. Every conversation you have with someone in the new heaven and earth, you'll never have to wonder, what do they mean by that? It'll always be amazing. There'll be no questioning motivations, no desire to do the wrong things. Every day that you're alive, you always desire the right thing. In fact, you can't even desire the wrong thing anymore because the desire of the wrong thing is gone. And that's gonna be a day. And we're gonna always live in the glory of who Jesus is. There'll be no need for the sun or the moon because Jesus will be our light. Why? Because his glory is the essence of what the sun barely even reflects. So in life, this glory concept is something we see all the time. It's it's, it's the essence of what makes something incredibly beautiful or what makes it attractive. So think of it, for instance, when you go to a wedding. What's the glory of a wedding? It's the bride, right? I was at a wedding not too long ago. It was in this kind of cool barn, and the groomsmen, all the bridesmaids were up front. And then there are these huge doors behind us. And all of a sudden, the music stopped and these doors open, and there's the bride. I mean, it was like epic, and she walked down, and like it was a beautiful moment because the the beauty of the wedding is the glory, the appropriate glory of the bride. But imagine how awful and just kind of broken it would be if you went to a wedding, and you looked, and you saw a bridesmaid or a mother-in-law, and they were wearing their wedding dress and you're like, hey, what's up with the wedding dress with the mother-in-law thing? And they're like, wow, she, she, she's, she's kind of proud that it still fits. And, you know, she's, you know she, she just wanted to wear it. So, I mean, you know, what can you do? And so you're like, that, that shouldn't be, right? Because it's supposed to be about the bride. That's what sin is. Sin is the grabbing of someone else's glory because you're worried about your own glory. So, when Jesus says, glorify the Son, he's not just talking about a little thing. He's talking about the main thing. He's talking about the essence of what it means for him to be the Son of God and the reason that he came to earth. He says in verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the whole reason he comes, the reason he gives eternal life is for the purpose of this glory thing. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. What are they to know? They're to know about the glory of God. That's what it is. Jesus comes to reveal what God is like. And then he says, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth. Notice, This isn't some sidebar agenda. This is the main reason that Jesus comes to earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus prays for glorification, but I want you to know where in his life he's praying for glorification. He's praying that through what follows, namely the cross, that the Father would glorify him. That's really, really important. Because sometimes we think that the way that I'm going to make it is by getting around this trial. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go through this trial. And you're going to glorify me, please, as I walk through this difficulty. And that becomes a model not just for Jesus' suffering. That becomes a model for all Christian suffering. Don't believe me? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. i have spent a long time here because this This is so important. If you don't get this right, and you don't understand what's going on here, you won't understand the rest of John's prayer or Jesus' prayer in John 17. And for that matter, if you're a Christian, you you won't know how to walk through suffering or difficulty. And all of us are going to walk through hardship. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. There's going to be moments when you look at your life, and you're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the hope of this passage is this. and sister, no matter what you're going through, you're not the only one who's ever walked through this. And I don't say that for you to get off sort of some pity party. What I mean is there's people, probably even within this church, who have walked the exact same road that you're walking through. That's why you need the body of Christ. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which And sin, which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How many of you know you don't get to choose the race? God sets the race. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, here it is, joy that was set before him. What is that joy? It's the joy of glorifying the Father. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he walked through the cross because of what he loved, namely the glory of God. He didn't love the cross. He loved the glory of God. And then how does that become helpful for everyday followers of Jesus? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." Anybody come to church today, weary and faint-hearted? What do you do when you're weary and faint-hearted? What do you do when you're approaching something and you're just like, you know, I I don't know how in the world we're going to do this? The writer of Hebrews says, you consider Jesus. You you see who he is. You see what he did. You see how he thinks. And you value and love what he loves. And here's the thing: we'll see us in a moment. The miracle is the reason that you value and love that is not because you're so amazing. It's only because Jesus put it there because he loved you. So Jesus' first prayer is for glorification. He says, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. The joy that's set before him is the glory of the Father. What's the one thing he longs for? The glory of the Father. What then becomes our singular motivation if you're a follower of Jesus? It is to glorify God. If you're not a Christian, why do Christians value the glorification of God? Because God has rescued us from our sins. We are deeply in love with him. We want everything to point to him because Jesus rescued us from the thing that was a disaster in our souls and converted us and made us new. And now everything about our life is about him because everything that was lost has now been found. Every part of us that was blind can now see. We are saved by amazing grace. We are saved because of the glory of God. (laughs) Secondly, Jesus prays for protection. Now, the bulk of John 17 is Jesus praying for his disciples. And this begins in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So there's going to be this theme that's within this text. I'm going to show it to you quickly. Of Jesus saying, I have declared your word, Father, to the people, here it is, whom you gave me. Look at 6b. He says, yours they were. So he's talking about these disciples. These disciples apparently belonged to the Father. And he says, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So the reason he puts all that together is their keeping of the word wasn't because they were so amazing at perseverance. In fact, every single one of them are going to desert Jesus. But he says, you have they have kept your word. Why? Because you gave them to me. So these disciples, their hope is that they belong to Jesus. Look at verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in Them. What is Jesus doing here? He's helping us to hear that underneath our lives is this beautiful but mysterious truth that those who are the followers of Jesus, genuinely converted, they belong to God, and they belong to God even before they knew how it was that they were going to belong to God. Now, how to work all that out? I don't know. I just know what this text says. And the reason that it's here is... For this reason, because when you're walking through a season of difficulty and you wonder, man, everything's blowing up around me, and I look at my future and I wonder how in the world am I going to make it? I mean, I, I've looked myself in the face before and thought, there is no way I'm going to make it through this. My only hope in that moment is not the creative strategy to try and work my way on a suffer, out of a suffering or work my way through a trial, but instead it is this assurance. I don't know how I'm going to make it my, my, way, my way through this, but here's what I know. Jesus bought me and I belong to him and he promised that he's going to help me make it all the way through so at the end of the day friend the hope for you is not a change in circumstances it's not a change in strategy it is reminding yourself we belong to Jesus like I don't know how this is going to turn out I don't know how this is gonna play out in terms of its effects, or I don't know how we're gonna make it. I I can't strategize my way through this. It's too complicated, it's too painful. I'm too weary to be able to walk through this season, but here's what I know. At the end of the day, I belong to Jesus. He sought me, he bought me, he pursued me, and now I'm his and he is mine, and there is no one who can pluck me out of his hand, and as a result, I can rest knowing that when I don't know what to do, I can know to whom I belong, and just say, Jesus, I belong to you. Help me. Jesus continues a theme of protection. He says, verse 7, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Part of the way that God helps us sustain us is through his word. They have received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you. They believe that you have sent me. Skip ahead to verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. What does that mean? It means keep them believing. Which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So one of the signs of perseverance in the body of Christ is that when suffering or hardship or difficulty comes whether it's a marriage or whether it's a friendship or whether it's a small group or whether it's a church membership, that when that suffering comes, that the enemy doesn't use it to create a wedge issue to divide people, but instead their perseverance causes them to say, I don't know how we're gonna do this. I don't even know if I agree with you. I don't even know how to work through this, but here's what I know. We both belong to Jesus. Like, we're family. And as a result, what we agree on is greater than what we disagree on. Oh man, how many marriages, how many families, how many small groups, how many relationships, how many churches need to be reminded of that? Because pressure can sometimes cause us to overly focus on the things that create division instead of being reminded, look, we belong to Jesus. There may be somebody in your world that you just need to pray for this week and to be reminded, look, this is friend, not foe. It feels like they're a friendly foe, but it means like this person is, they belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. Text continues. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, he was with them, but he wasn't one of them. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, and I am not of the world. And then he says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Oh, what an important truth. Jesus says, look, Father, I'm praying not that you remove them out but rather that you keep them while they're in it. You know, church, there can be a tendency when pressure or difficulty or hardship comes that you want to emotionally run away, or even that you want to protect yourself from any kind of further pain. And of course, there's always wisdom that needs to be applied. In all these scenarios, Jesus said to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, But the fact of the matter is that sometimes Christians react to the pressure of a culture or society and they think we need to pull away from the world and kind of create our own little communities of only Christians and that'll solve all our problems. And yet some of the most dysfunctional communities known to mankind have been communities where people just gathered together because they were scared to death of the world. The hope is not to flee the world. The hope is not to build a cocoon so you don't have to deal with the world. The hope is that Jesus protects you from the prince of the power of the world. For some of you, that's a prayer you need to pray over your children. They're grown, they're adults, they're in the world. And you need to pray, God, they they claim to have become a Christian. Would you keep them from the evil one? Some of you have prayer requests on the the trellises that are out in the, the atrium area of the names of children that you want to be awakened, that the God of this world has blinded their minds. And even today, you're praying, God, would you open their eyes? Would you bring them back? Jesus's prayer here is one that's designed to remind them of what is true. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus, by this prayer, tells disciples that the key to glorifying the Father is by learning how to glorify him as we're walking through trials, that your hope is not a change of circumstances, Even if those circumstances change, that would be awesome. We could pray to that end. But at the end of the day, what Jesus prays is that they would be protected from the evil one and that they would glorify, along with him, the Father. That's why Jesus has come into the world. There's some of you here today that that may be part of the reason why God brought you to this service because you're pinning all your hopes on a change of circumstance like you've convinced yourself, I can't be happy unless this thing changes. And I get that you're going to be weary and discouraged and and, and, and sorrowful, and there's nothing wrong with that at one level, but if all your hopes are pinned, or all your emotional resources are conditioned upon, or if you think you can't spiritually thrive unless particular things are true, you're not only not going to Experience the joy of the Lord as you walk through that sorrow or difficulty, which means that you could persevere, but also you're going to miss the whole manner in which Jesus intended for his disciples to make it through the world. Jesus is anticipating the cross He's not backing away from it. He's not going around it. He's going to go through it knowing that he's going to glorify God and God's going to help him, going to preserve him, going to guard him. So no matter how dark or how difficult it gets for him, and in the case of disciples or for you, it means that Jesus bought you if you're a Christian. It means you belong to him. It means that the devil at the end of the day is not going to win. And we have this little while while we are in the world experiencing hardship and difficulty, but this little while is not going to be forever and one day... Jesus is going to come back and all of our sorrows will be turned to joy and there'll be no more crying, no more tears and Jesus will reign supreme forever and ever. I can hardly wait. So the final thing that Jesus prays is this sanctify them in your In the truth, your word is truth. What does it mean that they're sanctified? It means that over time, God uses his words to make us more and more like himself. It means that you come to faith in Christ, you become a Christian, and that over the course of your lifetime, God incrementally through the word, and here's the other thing, through hardship and difficulties, shapes you more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, that doesn't sound very attractive. Why would you want to be like Jesus? Why not just have an easy life? Why not just bail on your marriage even though it's hard? Why not just walk away from that friend because they're so annoying? Why not just give in in to that temptation because you're missing out on so much pleasure? Why, Why do Christians love the glory of Jesus? Why, when the Apostle Paul says that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, why, when Christians hear that, are we like, yes, here's why. Because Jesus rescued us from ourselves. He cleansed us from our sin. He made us new creatures. He created new desires, new longings within us he has whetted our appetites with how wonderful and glorious the glory of God is and once you have seen that and once you have tasted that and once you have been made new your perspective on everything including suffering radically changes if you're a Christian I want to remind you the reason you're here is because God loved you Jesus died for you and he wants to glorify himself through you. And you have tasted and seen of the goodness of the glory of God. So no matter what happens to you, brother or sister, you can glorify God and honor him. And if you're not a Christian, you've probably, you probably can think of ways that you've pursued glory in all the wrong places. And today the Bible would say to you, why not find the ultimate expression of true satisfaction and fulfillment by coming to an end of yourself and coming to Jesus. To pray like Jesus in this text means that we would say, God, sanctify us and make us like Christ. Protect us from the evil one. And third, glorify us that we may glorify you.